Welcome to episode 343 of the Thinking Poker Podcast. From Owings Mills, Maryland, I'm Andrew Brokus. I will be joined shortly by Nate Mavis in Melrose, Massachusetts, and by today's guest, Matt Clark, who is the marketing manager for the World Poker Tour. Uh, and so, you know, obviously, we talked to Matt a decent amount about how poker has been marketed in the past, uh, some you know, speculation on how maybe it could or should or will be marketed in the future, and uh, about the WPT specifically. Uh, also, some about Matt's background in you know poker journalism, and you know started as one of those people who goes around getting chip counts, and you know eventually moved up into this position. So, an angle on the uh, poker industry that we. I feel like we don't hear a ton from um, from these folks. So I was excited to have Matt on the show and hope you will enjoy that interview. Uh, before we get there, I have a strategy segment for you. But do make sure if you enjoy our strategy segments and or you just want to support the podcast, uh, please do join our Patreon. That's at uh, Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N slash Thinking Poker Daily. Uh, this is you will get access to uh, three or five, depending on the tier that you choose, uh, episodes per day. No, not per day, per week. Um, so you'll get one per day for either three or five days each week. Uh, and these are just pure strategy episodes. So this is um, some combination of myself, Nate, and Carlos Welch, who I imagine most people will know, but he's one of our most popular guests, uh, more popular than the hosts, frankly, <laughs> as he should be. He's more popular with me than uh, either myself or Nate. <clears throat> Um, so some combination of the three of us on each episode, just pure strategy. None of this uh, rambling like I'm doing right now. Uh, no, no interviews. Just uh, dive straight into the strategy. You get a get a hit of strategy every day. Uh, you can sponsor that for as little as five dollars a month at Patreon.com/ThinkingPokerDaily. That is the uh, the best way to support this show right now. Um, of course, it's also very helpful. Uh, both to us and hopefully to you, if you check out the items in the Thinking Poker store as well. That's at www.nitcast.com, N-I-T-C-A-S-T.com. And uh, that's where you can find our uh, past premium podcasts, as well as the strategy video that I did with Carlos exploiting small stakes tournaments, which I think will be uh, of interest to too many people for both entertainment and strategic value. You can find uh, eBooks of Play Optimal Poker and Play Optimal Poker 2 there, um, gift certificates, lots of good stuff in the Thinking Poker store. So patreon.com slash thinkingpoker and knitcast.com are the places to go to support the show, which I hope you will do. Uh, strategy for today. This hand is coming to us from Josh. Um, and this is a somewhat old uh, pre-pandemic hand. Um, I, as far as I know, I think there's not poker currently at the Encore. It was the last I heard in Boston. Anyway, um, Josh says, this was an interesting hand I played at 2-5 No Limit at Encore last night. Uh, Preflop. Table has a few decent players, but is mostly tight passive. I've been very active in position and likely have a loose image. I have a $2,500 stack and am under the gun with ace-king offsuit, so I raised to $25. The out of the gun plus one player who plays very straightforward and is tight aggressive, three bets to $85 with about 900 to start the hand. Folds around to me and I call. Against some players I would four bet, but I don't think that's very good against this player since his three bet range is already narrow. If he jammed over my four bet, I would be forced to fold since it's always either kings or aces, so I think calling is best. Flop with $177 in the pot, our hero again holding ace of clubs, king of hearts. Flop is king of spades, six of clubs, seven of clubs. So top pair, top kicker with a backdoor nut flush draw. Josh says, I check and under the gun plus one checks behind. I'm happy with the flop action because I'm in decent shape against this checkback range 
which includes 10-10 queen-queen and ace-queen. I think he might check a few combos of ace-king, but a lot of them would bet. I also don't think he ever checks back aces on a king-high board with two clubs, and king-king is very unlikely since there's only one combo remaining. The turn is the six of spades. Still $177 in the pot. Hero has ace of clubs, king of hearts. Board is king of spades, six of clubs, seven of clubs, six of spades. I check again, and this time under the gun plus one bets $75. I check raise to $175 and he makes the call. I didn't want to lead the turn since the main hands I'm beating are tens through queens, and that's also why I raised so small. My main customer at this point is a skeptical 10-10 to queen-queen or a chop with ace-king. River, now $527 in the pot, is the seven of diamonds, making the final board king of spades, six of clubs, seven of clubs, six of spades, seven of diamonds. So king, six, seven, six, seven, no flush possible, our hero has ace-king. I bet $150 into the $527 pot, and under the gun plus one moves all in for $480 more. I tanked for a long time, and I was considering a few scenarios. First, does he have ace-king? I decided no, since only a few combos are checking back on the flop, and most of the time ace-king will call my river bet instead of moving in. Two, is he capable of turning 10 through queens into a bluff because of my downsized bet? I decided no, since this is the type of player that is on autopilot looking at his phone whenever he's not in a hand. I was completely unconcerned about sixes or sevens, since he literally never has those. I ultimately folded my ace-king, convinced he simply must have the one combo of kings that beat me. I hate folding. At the end of the session, Under the Gun Plus One confirmed to me that he had kings. Overall, I'd say I'm happy with how I played the hand, since if he had tens through queens, I think I would have gotten decent value. What do you think? First off, Josh, thanks for writing. Um, I also am fairly happy with how you played the hand. Um, I'm going to take it from the beginning. I know the main question uh, that Josh is asking about is the river, but I have some comments on um, on other streets that, to me, I think are maybe even a little bit more interesting than the river. So first off, uh, we're starting with a 5x open under the gun. Um, I, mean, I think that can be okay in the right game. I think there are a lot of, I think, pretty good reasons for using a smaller open raise size. Um, the main reason to use a size like this is if you're in an excessively loose passive game. Um, the fact that it's a tight passive game makes me want to use a smaller open size. Um, you're getting a lot of the same folds when you have weaker hands, and uh, with your so. I mean, the, you want to be open, especially in a tighter game, you want to be opening a lot of hands that are kind of on the cusp of you know, profitability in terms of whether or not they are worth playing because you're going to get a disproportionate amount of fold equity in a tight game. So you want to be raising more often in a tight game, and that means you want to be risking less when you do raise, right? I mean, when you open with something like uh, I don't know, ace-jack offsuit in this spot, which I think you know, when you're um, 250, or sorry, 500 big blinds deep, and um and out of position you know i think ace jack offsuit is, is a pretty marginal open at, a, at least at a nine-handed table so if you're opening a hand like ace jack uh you want to be able to open that you, you can find profit with a small raise i don't think it's going to be profitable to put five big blinds into the pot and i think there's a lot of hands that fall in that category stuff like eight seven suited a lot of these sort of sort of cuspy hands um and this is you know the cusp is different in different positions, but I think it's generally true that if you want to have a wider opening range, you want to use a smaller raise size. The um, the large raise size should correlate with a stronger opening range, and I think is something that you only want to do in a loose passive game, a game where people are pretty willing to call large preflop raises, but they rarely three bet. Um, so in a in a tight aggressive or a loose passive game, you would. Um, you would prefer the smaller raise size. The larger raise size is really only good in a, in a specific situation. And it is an exploit. I mean, the uh, solvers use small raise sizes. Um, so the only reason to, to use the larger raise size is if you are exploiting some specific tendency of your opponents and the main tendency you'd be exploiting is loose preflop play. <clears throat> anyway, that's a long divergence on something that I don't think is super important. Um, so now under the gun one, three bets to 85. And uh, I really like Josh's call here. I think it's important, um, and I imagine this is you know, related to Josh having 500 big blinds on the table. It's important to recognize that you know when you're super deep, you don't. And I know, you know the villain only has like 180 big blinds, but that's still a lot. Um, you really don't want to be overplaying Ace King. I don't even know that you'd want to four bet 
kings here. Um, you might want to format like exclusively aces and then some blocker based hands like ace five suited or something, or exploitatively maybe just only aces. Uh, but I think you know if we're expecting this player to have a very tight three betting range, which it sounds like is the case, and which he kind of has to. I mean, he's under the gun one, so he can't be three betting too many hands. Um, you really just don't. I mean, you shouldn't be opening too many hands under the gun. He shouldn't be three betting hands under the gun plus one. Um, so by the time we get around to U4 betting, it should be a very narrow and very tight range. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if in theory you're indifferent to four betting with ace-king offsuit, but I think in practice you are better off calling with it. I don't even know that it's... I mean, I don't think the issue is so much that you're going to have to fold to a, a five bet, although I agree that you should. I think it's more, I don't think you'll even be doing that well against his range for calling a four bet. Like, I think his range for three betting is probably tight enough that, like, I don't know that Ace-King is really a favorite against it. It's, I mean, from, from the way that Josh is describing this player, that I, I, I just don't think we really want to put more money in this pot, period. It's not just about having to fold to a four bet. Anyway, uh, Josh does call correctly, I think. Let me go to the flop. $177 in the pot. Josh holding Ace-King. Flop King-7-6 with a backdoor flush draw for Josh. Josh uh, checks and under the gun one checks behind. Um, so I agree that you want to check here. I don't think in, in practice, I think you probably just don't have a donk betting range here, period. There might be exploitative reasons to do it, but in general, I'm just checking to the to the three batter, especially when he's this tight. Um, and when he checks behind, I agree that you should feel very good about it. I think, uh, I, I would say of the hands that Josh mentioned as check behind candidates, which were tens, jacks, queens, kings, and ace queen, um, I think that, you know, Kings is unlikely just combinatorically. And I think Ace Queen, I think there's a pretty good chance the villain would bet Ace Queen. I mean, I don't know this specific player, but I think a lot of people are going to bet Ace Queen here because they understand, like, they're the, the three better. They've shown a lot of strength three betting. They are often going to have hands like Aces or Ace King, and they want to get some fold equity when they actually have Ace Queen. So um, I think that he's probably even more weighted towards tens through queens than Josh is, um, Josh is assuming. I agree that you know, this is also very consistent with how I'd expect him to play kings, but it's just, you know, combinatorically, kings is uh, unlikely. So I agree with Josh that you should feel pretty good about it once he checks back. Uh, broadly speaking, what's happening here is the villain is mostly condensing his range when he checks back. We should expect that he's betting a more polarized range, which would be aces, ace-king, maybe some pocket kings, and then also some of it, so those are the very strong hands, the, the top pole in the polarized range. And then the bottom pole would be like the ace-queen. He really has, I mean, if, if he's a tight player, he probably doesn't have much else in his three-betting range. So ace-queen is probably like the bottom of his range, and that means that's going to be like the bottom pole of his polarized range. So he's betting, I would expect that he's betting a polarized range, and then checking a mostly condensed range, which would be queens through tens, maybe some ace-king, and then um, pocket kings is like the one trap in the in the checkback range. Literally one. I mean, he doesn't know that you have ace-king, I guess, so maybe in, from his perspective, he has three combinations of, of traps. But still, he's going to be very heavily weighted towards medium strength hands when he checks back the flop. Um, the turn is a six, so now the board is... King 676 six, with uh, two flush draws on the board. Uh, the hero has the ace of one of those suits and ace king. Uh, now there's $177 in the pot. I kind of think you should just bet. I think this is probably where I most disagree with Josh in the hand. Um, so Josh's argument was that that this is essentially that like he wanted to take this line because he thought this would be the best line against queens through tens. And I agree that those are the right hands to target. I just think betting is probably the better way to target them. Um, they should be more willing to call a bet than to bet themselves. There's really not a lot of incentive for the villain to bet queens, jacks, maybe even tens when checked to. Um, there's a little bit of protection value in betting them, but not very much. There's only one card to come. He still has to be worried about not having the best hand. Like, here, obviously, can check ace-king, because he is. Um, and if, if the villain has tens or jacks, then he has to worry about um, Josh having jacks or queens and having him beat. So the, the thing is, the villain has basically told you that he's trying to take his hand to showdown. Um, if that's true, that he's trying to take his hand to showdown cheaply, then you have the best hand and should be trying to value bet. You should be trying to deny him the opportunity to take his hand to showdown. And the best way to do that is by betting. When you check, you take the substantial risk that he's just going to check behind again when he has tens through queens. Um, it's certainly not 
implausible to me that he's going to bet those. Um, and some people probably don't fully understand this concept and they just bet because they're nervous about checking twice. Like they don't necessarily think it through <laughs> fully like what their incentives are. And they're just sort of like, well, it's going to look weak if I check twice, so I'll bet. Some people probably do bet more often than they should. But I, mean, I think no matter who the opponent is, there's a fair chance they're going to check behind with 10 through queens. And that's very bad for you. You don't want to give them that opportunity to get to showdown cheaply. And where what Josh ends up doing, I mean, first, there's the risk that the villain just checks behind and you don't get the opportunity to check raise, period. But then there's also the risk, I mean, I think this looks pretty strong for Josh to check raise from 75 to 175. It seems unlikely to me that Josh is ever really doing this as a bluff. Um, I think most people, not that you couldn't, but I think this is the kind of line a lot of people really struggle to balance. And I think that you know, reasonably good players who just have a lot of experience. Like, it sounds like the villain is is decent in the sense of he's got a lot of experience playing poker. He doesn't sound like he's really, you know, thinking or trying all that hard, but he does sound like he's kind of been around the block a few times and has learned a number of things just by experience. And I think one thing he would have learned by experience is that this is often a pretty strong line, this, like, small check raise on the turn. So there's also the risk that you're, you're showing a lot of strength here in a way that you wouldn't be if you just bet the turn. Um, yeah, ideally, you're getting more money into the pot as well if the villain does actually call the check raise, but now there's two big ifs. I mean, first, there's if he even bets in the first place with a hand like queens, and then second, there's the if he calls the check raise. Um, the one other nitpick I have, you know, Josh says, my main customer is a skeptical 10-10 through queen-queen or a chop with ace-king. Well, you know, a chop with ace-king is not a customer, right? That's just, you're not making money off of the ace-king. Um, and I can, maybe the argument is you're trying to make him fold ace king, but then that's not really consistent with getting called by tens through queens. So I think just you know keep it straightforward and bet the turn. The villain is telling you he has a medium strength hand. You beat medium strength hands. Bet for value. Don't count on a medium strength hand betting because that's not what their incentive is. So I would really like to bet the turn and then just fire again on the river. Um, and then you know Josh, I think realizing that he's shown a lot of strength by check raising the turn, ends up betting small on the river where I would like to just, um, I mean, I think if you bet something like 100, probably maybe 125 on the turn, then you can bet you know, 250 or something on, on the river and you still end up putting in about the same amount of money that Josh did. So I don't even know that he, I mean, given that he feels compelled to make a small bet on the river, I don't even know that he's getting more money into the pot by check raising than he would by just betting twice. And again, there's all that extra risk associated with checking. Um, so fully on board at this point, everything the villain has done has been consistent with having a medium strength hand. And then he jams all in. And this point in the analysis is by far my favorite part of the hand. And I think really, really, really good on Josh's part. Most people get this wrong. Most people do what I call half-assed hand reading, where they say, well, there's only one combination of kings and that's the only thing I lose to, so I call. Well, how many hands do you beat? What hand would villain three bet preflop, check the flop, bet call the turn, and then shove over a river bet? Uh, once villain checks the flop and calls the turn, weak hands are extremely unlikely for him. And this is why, I mean, Josh doesn't say this explicitly, but he's not even considering the possibility, I think correctly, he's not even considering that, you know, villain might have uh, a hand with no showdown value at all, like a hand that couldn't even beat a bluff here. Because um, what would that even be? Like ace-queen maybe, but then, I mean, even ace-queen, like it, it could, could potentially beat a bluff in this situation. Like, I just think there aren't really weak hands for the villain to have, which is why we shouldn't expect to see bluffs, right? I mean, most people don't bluff with a hand that they perceive to have showdown value. Most people will only bluff when they have a hand that they perceive to be weak. And I think that this line, especially calling the turn bet, suggests that the villain does not perceive his hand to be weak. He might conceive it to be medium strength, you know, a hand that has showdown value. He does not conceive it to be a weak hand that couldn't possibly win at showdown. Um, I just don't think there's any hand he could have that does that. So, um, you know, of course, the medium strength hands are much more likely than the rare pocket kings, and that's why it makes sense for the hero to keep putting money into the pot until the villain raises. And once the villain raises, that's no longer consistent with him having a medium strength hand. Right? The only reason he would be raising with tens through queens, as Josh said, would be if he's turning them into a bluff. 
Um, and I just don't think that's the kind of thing most people do. Certainly not this player, which, which um, as Josh has described him. Uh, I also think Josh is correct that Ace King is not going to shove here. So what Josh is doing, Josh is doing the work of actually trying to figure out what does make sense for the villain, rather than just ruling out something. Like that's only doing half the work of hand reading. That's why I call it half-assed hand reading. He's only doing, or not, he's doing the full job. Most people only do you know, half the hand reading here, where they say, well, strong hands are unlikely, so I call. The problem is weak hands are even more unlikely than strong hands. This is just a very weird thing that's happening here. This is an extremely unlikely line from the villain. Very few hands make sense for him. And the one that makes the most sense, by far, really the only one that makes sense, is the one that Josh is losing to. Uh, I mean, Josh also didn't really consider aces as a possibility for him, which is probably right, but I wouldn't completely rule it out. Like, I think aces... Aces certainly makes more sense than Ace-King does for the villain. Um, it doesn't sound like the sort of player that would do it, but I think there is like an outside chance we could lose to Aces, so there might even be more than one combo to be worried about. Um, yes, this is a good bluff catcher. Yes, you block pocket kings, but there's no sense in bluff catching if the villain is literally never bluffing. And this, I think, is a spot where hashtag they always have it. So... Very nice fold, Josh. Uh, thanks for helping us earn the name Knitcast, <laughs> which is, for those who don't know, it might have been the very first episode of the show. We had a strategy segment that involved folding a uh, full house on the river. We kind of coined the term Knitcast, which has been like a nickname for the show, and that's why uh, we have the site knitcast.com, which is the, the site... Um, the store for the for the thinking poker our various uh, strategy products and um, again patreon.com slash thinking poker daily if you want to support the show in that way thank you for listening thank you josh for writing to us other folks can write to us at podcast at thinkingpoker.net if you have a, sh a hand that you'd like to hear on the air and um, or if you're a patron you can submit them to us through patreon and you will get priority consideration there uh, thank you again for listening, and please enjoy our interview with Matt Clark. Yeah, I think, honestly, like, I might be the least accomplished poker player who's ever been on the show so i guess that's a sort of honor that i could take with me no you there's not there's no chance that's true <laughs> yeah okay. that's uh you just outed yourself as like not a very so serious listener of the show i'm not offended <laughs> or anything <but laughs> well to be fair if i listened to more episodes i probably would be a better poker player so i guess there's that too <laughs> that i'll accept is true uh, well, thanks for taking the time, Matt, to um, to, to talk to us. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad we were able to do this uh, over the last couple of months. I've gone back and forth, but it's cool that we finally have the time now. Yeah, it's um, you know, I, I, I kind of thought like during um, just you know with, with people like going fewer places and and, and doing less things, uh, it would be like easier to um, schedule stuff. And I just like I found myself kind of drained. Like I haven't really had the um, the energy to, like, I sort of had this, this thought back in March of like, oh, we're going to record like so much podcast stuff because like what else, you know, like we'll finally just be, you know, people won't be going anywhere. It'll be so easy to get people. And I just like haven't had the energy to do it. Yeah, I, I totally understand that. Yeah, my my life the last eight months has definitely turned, taken a different turn than I would expect, but it's been good. Um, um, so, I mean, how much of your, well, let me make sure I get your, your job title first. Your, um, I want you to tell me. <laughs> Sure. I am the marketing manager for the World Poker Tour. Okay. Uh, so what does that entail in a, in a normal year? In a normal year, it's a lot of promotion of our live events and everything that comes with them, uh, whether it's the, the press release that comes out announcing the event, um, the social media campaigns around the events, coordinating with our tour management team and also our talent. Uh, really, really cool to be able to work with Tony, Lynn, Vince, Matt Savage, uh, and help them get on um, interviews such as this and other shows uh, to help promote the events and our partners, and also to a lot of uh, internal promotion and work of our uh, online product club WPT as well, which uh, is a big part of the WPT brand. 
And that promotion, I mean, I know you mentioned press releases, but like outside of that, what form does that promotion take? Is that like social media or, um, yeah, just like, like what, what are the concrete things that you're doing to promote those? Uh, social media is a major part. It's a, a big way of how the poker world interacts, especially on Twitter. I'm sure uh, you guys uh, you guys are on Twitter quite frequently to a certain extent. I'm trying to wean myself off as much as possible, but uh, the job kind of leads me to be on there quite a bit. But yeah, the, the promotion of the events uh, through social media, we found it has a lot of success. And also, too, um, one thing that the WPT has that's really awesome to be able to take advantage of is uh, 18 seasons worth of content that we can post for like say for example five diamond we have dozens and dozens of famous hands from that event over the years that we post to kind of bring that nostalgia back but also look at what's to come for the event moving forward uh, so it, i mean it, that kind of makes it sound like the job wouldn't change that much uh in 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 2020 is that accurate uh to, to some extent yes i uh, I, I think in a in a normal year, it's just a constant rotation of events. So trying to figure out planning an event uh, that's taking place three months from now, uh, an event that's coming up six weeks from now, but also an event that's taking place right now and how to uh, give everyone as much uh, time in the spotlight as possible. Because uh, before, before COVID, WPT was on the verge of, I think, 70 or so uh, live events across the globe. So as you can imagine, there's some that are um, taking place on top of each other in different parts of the world. So being able to promote those events simultaneously when they're taking place. I think last year, actually, we had events simultaneously taking place in, uh, I believe, Florida, the UK, and Australia all simultaneously. So it's a it's a fun juggling act to, to make sure all those events get their time in the spotlight because they also represent a different part of our audience, too, as that continues to grow. Mm-hmm. And when you say promoting these, I mean, is that encouraging people to play them, encouraging people to, to watch them on TV, all the above? Yeah, so it, in terms of uh, the event promotion themselves, uh, definitely wanting people to go and play is a is the big objective of ours. Uh, it's, it, it's part of the reason why WPT is in so many venues is uh, we're able to bring players from around the world to their, to their property to come and play poker. Uh, and maybe do some other things too. So uh, that's definitely a big part of it. And then also too, uh, when it comes to the TV show, um, promoting the show is obviously really big for us. Uh, that's what I've been working on a lot the last couple months is uh, creating new commercials for our show uh, at, that promote Club WPT and then also just various different uh, partner objectives that we have going on. Like for example, um, the recent WPT online event that we held in New Jersey on Party Poker US Network, uh, they had a commercial that ran on our show, which was really fun to be able to put together and uh, give them an added asset to, to their event. Nice. Uh, so let's let's talk a little bit about your uh, personal background in poker. I mean, how, how do you end up as the marketing manager for the WPT? Yeah, the uh, it, it's a... It's a little bit of a dotted background in terms of the exact timeline of when everything took place in terms of the poker landscape in my personal life. Uh, I was a senior in high school when Black Friday happened, but even before Black Friday, I was really serious about poker. Uh, I saw Chris Moneymaker win on TV when I was 10, but it wasn't Moneymaker necessarily that really drew me to poker. It was uh, Phil Ivey and his Rockets jersey. I thought that was the coolest thing ever. Uh, I was a big sports fan growing up, so I always kind of trended toward athletes, and uh, there was just something about Shaq when I was five years old, seeing him play, that kind of stuck with me, and I became a Lakers fan, so uh, seeing Ivy in that Rockets jersey and just his table presence really drew me to poker, and then kind of the same path that a lot of other people had where they started playing with their friends, and on and on it goes from there, and then um, when I was a teenager, I kind of messed around online playing like Rush Poker, uh, on my lunch breaks from work, having no idea what I was doing at all, not really even having an idea of where I could learn strategy or anything like that. And then Black Friday happened, and then it was kind of just, uh, I guess I'll go to college now, and that's just not really a thing that I will focus on at all. And it, it really worked out, I think. Uh, I really enjoyed my college experience, and I was glad that I was able to play some live poker every once in a while. I went to school at Lemoyne College in Syracuse, New York, and Turning Stone was pretty close by so being 18 
being able to go there and play live poker every once in a while. Uh, that, w- that was really nice. And then uh, when I was in college, too, uh, I met some people who, uh, who play professionally now um, and some who are pretty serious recreational players who all went to school in the Philadelphia area. And that was my first time really meeting people who were uh, more serious about poker than I was and just learning from them and how they approached the game. And that kind of helped expand my reach, too. And then uh, once I graduated college, uh, I actually went to work for the World Series of Poker after I think it was like within two weeks of my graduation. Um, they posted a tweet saying they were looking for live reporters um, the spring of 2015. I already had a job lined up in New York City to go work at a healthcare PR firm. So I pushed my start date back and went out to the World Series and had an, had an incredible experience. I mean, I, I was a huge poker fan growing up. I consumed as much poker poker content as I possibly could. So being at WSOP for a summer was, was awesome. Uh, and I met some really good people there, especially uh, Will O'Connor, who you guys might know, but he uh, did a lot of live reporting on the East Coast. And I met him. And then when I was uh, working in New York City, I would go to the Borgata on weekends when they had events to do some live reporting there. And then uh, in August of 2016, I left my job in PR, which was definitely the right decision. It was not the right industry for me, and I didn't really like it too much. So I decided to leave and do some more live reporting uh, on the East Coast and um, kind of built up uh, a few different places where I would work consistently, be able to plan my schedule accordingly. And it was definitely a grind. Like living in New York City um, isn't cheap by any stretch, and no matter really where you are. And then um, with poker live reporting, even though there's a lot of events, it still takes some time to build up a network of folks who want to have you come report on their events. So I was really fortunate to to meet some people along the way who would give me uh, some gigs to come out and work at their events, like uh, Tana Tana Carter with the Run Good Gear folks. I worked with him for a few years, went to all of their stops. uh, And then I worked for the World Poker Tour doing live reporting. I think the first gig I had with them was March of 2017. I went to South Africa for their event there at Emperor's Palace, which was really cool. Uh, if you've ever been to South Africa at that at that event, it's a lot of fun. It's a unique poker atmosphere like anywhere else I've ever been. It was really cool. And I just started working with WPT more there. Uh, and then I became their beat reporter, uh, I think, later that, later that year when they started Season 16, the year Art Papazian won um, Player of the Year. And I worked at a lot of events and I uh, became pretty close with Donnie Peters, who was my predecessor as marketing manager. And then he left his position in September of 2018. And I was living in Vegas at the time. I moved from New York to Vegas um, the summer of 2018 because it was just becoming a little bit much uh, traveling back and forth to New York. I mean, like there was some times where one place I used to work, uh, it's now called Rivers, Philadelphia. It used to be called Sugar House in downtown Philadelphia. And they would have this event called the Sugar Rush Challenge, which is like a quantum tournament. And they would have their day twos on a Sunday, and I would go there on oh, one Sunday every couple months. And But, you know, I'd, I'd leave my apartment at 7 a.m., take a bus down there for work, and then come back. And then it would be like 5 a.m. when I would get back to New York. So it would be like a 22-hour day to, to work for 12, 14 hours, however long the tournament was. But moving to Las Vegas just seemed a lot more convenient for, for that job. So... I made the move, and then uh, I got a call from uh, the WPT to see if I'd be interested in coming out for an interview. I went out the next day and left with a job offer, so it was pretty easy to move from Vegas to Orange County within a span of a few hours uh, with everything in the trunk of my car after already moving to, uh, to Vegas from New York. So you've just said so many interesting things, and I cannot stop thinking about the fact that there will be people legally playing poker in Turning Stone this year who were not born when Chris Moneymaker won the World Series of Poker. Oh, wow. Wow, I never thought about that until you just brought it up. That's a, that's a tremendous point. <laughs> yeah, I like like I, I care about your career, but like I just can't stop. I'm just completely blocked. I'm done here. Andrew, you, 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 you take over. <laughs> I'm completely, it's like nerd sniped, but for feeling old. I'm done. My brain is disabled. I'm out. Yeah, I feel like you kind of broke me there as well. <laughs> Um, just as as a poker reporter, 
Matt, I mean, what are, what do you think uh, the average poker player like doesn't appreciate about the the job of uh, a poker reporter? Like, I kind of have the sense that they're like much maligned, um, and I think there is sort of a counter sense of you know we should be like appreciating the poker reporters earlier. But I think in general, the poker reporters kind of have a bad rap of you know getting a lot of hands wrong or. Um, I don't know. Just what, what would you like people to understand about uh, you know the the people just reporting on poker hands? I think one thing that that stands out is it's definitely important to just be as attentive to detail as you can when you're reporting on various hands, and just as you understand the players around you, it becomes much easier to do the job. Like, for example, when if you're doing a live reporting on WPT day one at Borgata when there's 800 people there, you know, it might be tough to find some hands, but if you're kind of, if you kind of know that you want to stand by Darren Elias because he's going to play in a few hands and maybe Ray Cartomi because he's going to play in a few hands too, kind of station yourself at those tables, find the hands that uh, seem interesting and you just kind of know where you're going to be in that that really helps to to make sure that you don't make uh, as many mistakes as possible. I think I think poker reporters get a bad rap too, just because there are certain things that are out of their control, which just makes it a little more difficult when you're moving from place to place or excuse, like venue to venue that might be lost on the average player. Like for example, if you're at a casino one day that has one color chip for five Ks and another casino at another place that has a different color for five Ks, that's something that you might lose lose track of when you're just working at a bunch of different places overall i'm i'm pretty fortunate to where um i really kind of focus myself as being a perfectionist for the job and trying to make as few mistakes as possible i'm sure everyone does as well too but um i think i just took a really strong attention to detail to it to where um i really found my found my way of workflow pretty early on and plus working with myself too i I work by myself a lot. Like most live reporters, they work in teams of two or three. I was really on my own a lot. So uh, just kind of knowing the best way to work for me and figuring out how to write down hands in a certain way where I never really had any details wrong. And also, too, I took photos at a lot of these events, too. So like I would take pictures of the board, which would help when writing up hands as well. So there's a lot of different reasons, I think, why um, poker reporters get a bad rap. But I, I think especially, too, there's just so many reporters who uh, who are maybe not as experienced when they first come on, it, and, and maybe they don't know poker as well when they first join wherever they are. And sometimes they'll it'll, it'll take a while to uh, to really latch on. Like for example, I, I remember at the World Series in 2015, I was covering the 10K Step Eight event, and that itself is quite the nuanced game, but to report on a four-way uh, stud eight pot and not make any mistakes, it's it, 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 it puts a lot on your brain, for sure. Uh, so Even when I'm I playing in the game, play. I sometimes find it hard to keep track of the action. <laughs> yeah, I think I think, uh, I think players should be a little bit more sympathetic to, to reporters just trying to catch action as best as they can, because I think it's also, to the players who are normally... Uh, a little bit harder on players are ones who are really attentive at the table and uh, don't really miss anything themselves. So they probably expect the same out of people who are watching action on four different tables, which, you know, mistakes will happen once in a while. But you know, as you get down to the final portions of a tournament, it's, it's definitely important to catch as much as you can and just find a, a workflow spot that works uh, the best for you. Is there a standard shorthand in the industry for recording hands? Uh, that's a really interesting question. Uh, I think there is in terms of how people will write action. Uh, I think also too, like, for example, I've worked with BJ Nemeth and Mickey Doff on numerous occasions, and I work with them now on WPT. They're live reporters who do a great job covering our events and they've worked together for so many years. They kind of know each other shorthand. So the way Mickey writes his hands, BJ understands. But for me personally, I have terrible handwriting as it is, so I understand my chicken scratch in a way that I don't think many other people would. So, like, for example, I would write a hand like 3D2H2S uh, for a 3-deuce-deuce three three board with the respective suits in there. And then, like, when I would write the action, it would be like an X for check. Some people would write a check mark. X's are just easier for me. So... 
it, it's one of those things where I think everyone has their own unique way of doing it. I just found one that was best for me. And also, too, I think my path to live reporting was different than a lot of people. I, I've never written a single hand history for poker news, and I don't think there's many poker reporters who in, at some point haven't worked for them to where there's like that live reporting standard. Um, I think a lot of it just came from working with Will and him kind of teaching me what worked well for him because he was working on his own at Forgata covering these events and he had an immaculate attention to detail and I learned from him on certain things to look for and just uh, workflow that worked well for him and honestly like I tried to replicate his work as much as possible and I was really working on my own until I started to get my own groove and then I would take my own unique uh, approach but yeah, uh, to answer your question about is there a general shorthand, I'm sure there's people like who could really give you a better answer to that question who have more in-depth knowledge working with other reporters. But for me, I, I, I guess like I, I, I never really found that, that standard approach. I mean, if you don't know the answer, the answer is probably no, right? I guess so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of finding your own approach, I'm curious if there were things when you took over doing the marketing for uh, World Poker Tour, did you have kind of a philosophy of your own of like how poker should be marketed or some thoughts on, you know, sort of leaks in the current, not just at WPT, but just kind of in, in general, just things that you were like, oh, if I ever had the chance to do that, I, I would do it differently. Like, what did you bring to the table when you uh, started doing marketing? I think I had a really in-depth knowledge of what players of different uh, different parts of the ecosystem were looking for. Uh, I think working, for example, with the Runga group for so long, it, their highest buy-in is the six, seven, $675 main event. That brings a certain type of player in. Um, and at the same time, I covered the, the one drop at WSOP that had 25 runners the year Bonneville won. And obviously, those players are looking for something different, too. So kind of knowing those, all those different ecosystems and the players that they're comprised of, uh, I think really helps to market certain events because I think you're going to market a, a deep stacks 1100 different than you're going to market five diamond. And also too, um, there's that poker fan as well who uh, probably won't be playing in five diamond, but they would love to have the opportunity one day and they want to follow it as much as they can. So it's important to give uh, fans the way to engage too with with our product and i think uh, i think that's something that's been really successful and also too uh one thing that i found probably a year in was different ways to make events their own just through social media like for example five diamond there's the diamond emoji okay that seems like a pretty easy one to tie in some little hard rock they have the guitar oh we can use a guitar emoji for this heart for the rock and roll poker open just little things like that that i picked up uh, along the way as I was doing it for a year. It took me really about a year before I was able to find kind of what I wanted to do in terms of my own voice. Um, before it, Donnie said, Donnie said a, an excellent example of, uh, how the, of how the voice of the WPT should sound. And also, too, I mean, one thing that uh, my, my boss told me on my first day at the WPT is um, the voice of this company is Mike Sexton. And it, if you if you would think of what you're going to say, think of how Mike would say it, and that's that's a, a great example to be able to follow. Also, of uh, how Mike Sexton would would go about something, I try to follow that as much as I can too. It seems like a good rule for life in general. What would Mike Sexton do? Right, I, he he's he's fantastic. I, I I really wish I was able to to work with him more um, before he left WPT, but. Uh, even the first time I met him uh, at an event, uh, it wasn't even a poker event. It was an event for Vince Van Patten's movie, you know, like my first month on the job. And he knew who I was and was telling me about how how much he appreciates uh, all the work we do. And it was, I mean, you, you can't ask for a better example of uh, how to interact with people than Mike Sexton. What would you say are the differences in marketing, you know, a, a deep stack event? I mean, obviously it's a different audience, but, you know, concretely, like what, what things are you doing differently when you're marketing a deep stack event than when you're marketing the five diamond? That's a great question. Uh, for deep stacks, we really like to market the events as being destinations because a lot of the time the, the deep stacks uh, casino partners that we're working with, they want to bring players from uh, not just their area in. Like, for example, if you have your Deep Stacks event at, at, in Pittsburgh, uh, they want to bring players who are not from Pittsburgh to the event. So 
Um, the longer we're with the casino partner, the more we're able to create content with them and make the event a, a destination where it's not just poker. Rivers Casino is a place where you really want to go and visit. I remember we did a really cool video there uh, where we took a, a cool video of their sports book. And then we did another video where uh, we did a walk around Pittsburgh and went to some local food places that a player toured with us in a brewery. So being able to use that content to promote an upcoming event um, really goes a long way toward making the, the venue a destination where even if you get knocked out on day 1B and it's 3 o'clock and you can't re-enter anymore, there's still stuff around Pittsburgh that you can go and do that maybe you didn't know about um, so you can enjoy the rest of your weekend. Um, and then for a, a main tour event, uh, especially as you get to the higher buy-in levels, uh, just being able to show more like the nitty-gritty of the event of like when satellites are, uh, when, when the final table might be, if it's a televised final table, uh, just different things like that. Uh, go into go into the uh, the main tour events, but also too, as I mentioned earlier, uh, with so many of these casino partners, we have a ton of content with that we've created with them over the years with the TV show or more off the fell activities in recent years. So we try to mix that in as well. But you can never go wrong with marketing LAPC showing uh, the one outer hand from uh, I think it was Alan Goring against JC Tran from however many years ago. You can't go wrong showing a one outer. Or having you know, having Phil Ivey winning LAPC before always works well for marketing that event too because he's only won one WPT and it's LAPC. So it, it sounds like part of the um, which makes sense, but I hadn't really thought about this. That you know, it, it's not just about necessarily turning out the the most number of people, but sometimes the the casino partner that you're working with might have specific goals in terms of you know what what they're hoping to accomplish by hosting the event. Like what kind of um, what kind of clientele they're they're trying to attract like you said you know people from outside of pittsburgh or something like that yeah i, I just use that i used to use that one as an example because i remember uh we really wanted to film as much content pittsburgh because i've been to that city before i've worked at river casino it's a really cool city so i knew there was a lot there that we could promote but uh without getting too specific there definitely are um certain casino partners who want to have more of that wider reach of folks who they're able to bring in for an event and uh there's some others, too, who want to simply attract as many players as possible, which obviously makes sense, too, as a goal. So um, being able to tailor uh, a marketing product based on the various needs of the casino partners, I think, is one thing we do really well. When you know that you have an event, uh, and I guess this is now with so many poker events going on, this is almost a constant, but you know, w- when you know that you have an event going on at the same time as um, you know, some other event that might also be, be drawing some significant chunk of your potential audience, what, what are the things that you would use to distinguish your event from whatever else might be going on? Are you talking about in terms of uh, coinciding WPT events or say like a, a huge EPT going on during a WPT? Yeah, the latter. It, you know, I, I don't really try to necessarily compete or I, I don't think WPT really tries to compete necessarily with events that are going on uh, directly. I think it's more of a way of saying, well, this event has this, and then trusting players to know that, okay, this event has this, and the other event that I'm considering maybe not might not have that. So uh, it, it kind of goes back to, like, we've had uh, definitely had examples recently with Deep Stacks events where there's multiple mid-major events going on simultaneously, and while some events might have a larger guarantee or might be considered a softer place to play, uh, we have... We have all this off the thought activity you can do at this event. You're going to have a great time here. Uh, and there's elements that we can provide with each of our casino partners, really, which has been awesome. Uh, that distinguishes the event from another one going on, even if it might not have the largest prize pool compared to, you know what, players are going to make their decisions. And um, we definitely try to do the best we can to create the best product for the event that we have going on. Um, it's not necessarily a, a, an idea of, okay, we'll raise our guarantee because this other guarantee is going on simultaneously. Mm-hmm. How do, how do guarantees? I mean, I guess I'm thinking in particular. There's been a lot of uh, controversy around like reentries, and uh, you know, a lot of people it sort of rubs them the wrong way to have unlimited reentries. I think some people feel like there shouldn't be reentries in tournaments at all, but that kind of defeats the idea of um, of reentries. But at the same time, you know, people want larger prize pools. Um, have you found the way that you need to promote? Uh, 
re-entry events like i guess have, have you like seen changes in terms of uh what the poker public is is looking for over the the time that you've been uh involved in, in marketing and you know, how do you respond to that kind of thing so for for the different casino partners they really have their own objective in terms of how they want to structure their events with uh, their re-entry policy, whether it, they have a shorter registration period, unlimited re-entry with a longer period. And we try to market that to the best of our ability on behalf of our casino partners, where Five Diamond has a longer registration policy. You simply note that this is how long registration is open. Uh, there's some other events that you can only register through level six. So we, we note that also. But in terms of how we manage it internally, it, it, it really is uh, a matter of us trying to work with our casino partners to figure out uh, a way that we can create an event to the best of our ability that suits what they're looking for too, uh, because you know they, they're they're competitive also. You know, if some if one of one WBT event gets large numbers, they might want to get more numbers. So we try to help them as best as possible with that. So on a different note, um, I think a lot of us when we think about the future of poker don't think very hard and we just sort of imagine it'll be roughly what it is now maybe poker winds down a little bit or COVID is rough on it or poker gets a little bit harder to sustain in certain live venues and maybe there will be somewhat fewer tournaments or somewhat more tournaments in some places but mostly we just sort of project out the way things are now what do you see poker being like 10 years from now that the rest of us might not think of I think it's going to be a series of, I, I think the buy-ins will continue to increase. Uh, I think the, the nature of how successful high buy-in events are now uh, will only continue to grow just because of how the ecosystem is evolving. Um, I still think $3,500 buy-in events will be sustainable for the long term. But also, too, I think uh, there will be more people interested in poker just as regulated gaming becomes more more of a part of uh, the landscape across the U.S. I think that's just one way that, that people will see either regulated gaming and become more interested in poker or just maybe their state will become on board too. I mean, I have, I have no crystal ball on, on, on what the future looks like there in terms of states coming on board, but I do think poker will continue to be popular just because of uh, people continuing to see the content. Like WPT, we're all over. Like if you, if you have a Samsung TV, we have a channel on there. Um, I don't think that's going away anytime soon. So as long as people can see and touch and feel poker from any part of any any part of the globe, poker will continue to do well. But I do think high buy-in tournaments will be uh, an even larger part of the ecosystem in a few years. If I had to make one prediction, a lot of us when we first started going to card rooms um, were a bit surprised at how not glamorous some of it was. Like. Uh, had romantic views about poker and then showed up and got a bit of a surprise. And my anecdotal sense is that people who are not poker players who showed up to work in other capacities um, had that experience more forcefully. Uh, did you, do you have any stark memories in that regard? Uh, so Turning Stone was the first place I ever went to play live poker and uh, I enjoyed it. I, I, I do remember their $2 poker club card fee, which Hashtag Nitcast was one of the worst things I've ever seen in a poker room. But yeah, that 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 was that was that's a huge pain. Yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> but I I really enjoyed the environment. Uh, it was a bunch of people who like I kind of kind of knew from my local area, or just like kind of knew that type of person. So it was really easy to kind of just sit and play and kind of get acclimated. But uh, I've always enjoyed, uh, especially traveling as much as I have over the last few years. Um, the different vibe that each poker room has in its own unique way. Like, for example, Tunica, uh, the horseshoe, it's in, it's, it's, it, it's kind of like in the middle of the casino area, but it's, it's open, but also like kind of tucked away, but you can still have the full casino atmosphere and that kind of makes it really cool. Tulsa, uh, Tulsa Hard Rocks are my favorite places to play. If you haven't had the chance to go play there, I'd highly recommend it. Uh, they have a really cool, like, enclosed poker room where they have snacks and refrigerators of water and everything available for the players, which is really cool. But um, I never really felt uh, like I got a bad experience from a card room I ever went to. I mean, sure, some are run better than others, but each poker room has its own unique charm. And I think 
understanding kind of the local players too and what they bring to it makes it a lot of fun also. And that's what I that's what I loved about traveling with the Rungan events was you really got to see different parts of America and how they interacted in that environment through poker. And the way people are at events in Tulsa is much different than the way people are at events in Bossier, Louisiana. And it was a really cool way to experience America because growing up, I, I spent most of my life living in upstate New York and didn't really travel too far outside of there just to like Boston and such where family lived and then the occasional trip to Florida. But uh, getting to see a lot of America through poker was an awesome experience. And I'm really grateful to have that opportunity because I think between 2015 and 2018, I traveled through at least, I think, 25 to 30 states or so. And just seeing how those people interacted through poker was awesome. The way they interact at Maryland Live is much different than they do at parks, even though they're only uh, a relatively small distance away. And I haven't been to Encore Boston yet, but I would have to imagine those folks are different than uh, Atlantic City. Confirmed. (laughs) Where are the growth areas in poker? Like, who are the people who are not currently playing poker that that, that you want to bring into the game? Uh, I think I think a younger audience will likely find poker in some way just through uh, video games and such. I think just the, the transition that we've seen so many people have through Magic the Gathering to poker, I have to feel like that is a natural transition toward esports players now who might find poker through that way. Obviously, online isn't quite as readily available as it as it was when Magic the Gathering was popular, but also, too, um, I do feel like there's some organic nature there. I mean, the WPT, when it's able to hold its live final tables, held them at an esports arena in Las Vegas. So I think there's some some growth there. I'm interested to kind of see how many 21-year-olds are playing WPT events in a few years, but also, too, I think... Uh, excuse me. I think we've seen it, too, in the last couple months where a lot of folks who haven't really been able to go outside and be competitive in other ways that they normally would have have found poker too and and that's been across a whole different set of age groups so i think the next five years sociologically will have a big impact on how poker growth does as people find their favorite activities either eliminated or just uh reduced perhaps to the pandemic and maybe we'll see more people join poker as a result of that but We'll have to see. It's tough for anyone to really predict what the pandemic will will do to the poker world in terms of bringing new players in. But I think, uh, at least on the WPT side, we have seen some people who have found poker as a a new hobby. Is poker going to need to change to attract a younger audience? Is there something about it that's like stodgy or or not video gamey enough? Uh, I think having younger players to be able to market probably helps i mean when i was 10 years old phil ivy was in his i think he was in his early to mid-20s probably around the same age as a a prime nba nfl mlb athlete so i think there's probably an organic touch point there of seeing that younger player do really well and try to aspire to be like them um unfortunately um that younger group of player now finds much more success playing online than they would um, playing live and obviously playing live isn't an option right now. So it's tougher to see who those young superstars might be, uh, for that, for that younger person to be able to touch. I, I never, I, I, I don't really know too many people who are around my age when the poker room happened other than my immediate group of friends and they didn't find poker until their teen years and such, but I was never really thrilled or I shouldn't say thrilled. I was never really enticed to, want to be like Doyle or be like Phil Hellmuth. I wanted to be like Phil Ivey. So I think that, I think that athlete aspiration that so many people are drawn to, whether it's Steph Curry or Patrick Mahomes, poker could use someone like that to, to kind of have that mega superstar capability. Now, obviously it's hard to find that person, um, but I do think they are out there. And if they have the right opportunity, um, could really have that, that chance to, to, to shine. I mean, I think if Tom Dwan made multiple WPT final tables, um, he might have had a chance to to kind of grow amongst that amongst that group even now, just because when you watch the show, you would see him from however many years ago and still see that young person that you could aspire to. But uh, it's it's tough to find that young person these days, and you know they they might be out there, but we'll see what happens. I mean, what do you, what do you guys think about that? I 
what I think has a lot to do with my next question. So can I just ask you, I, I mean, what I think is that poker is so different now and I don't know how to market it. And maybe again, I'm just being an old man, but when I got into the game, there was this pervasive idea that poker was about intuition and uh, could be played sort of using the cognitive apparatus you already had or something, um, or, or that you could bring your personality into it in, in a much deeper way than I think people now uh, think. So I'm curious how you market poker now when most serious players or all serious players and even many casual players understand that game theory is such a big part of the game now that um, stylistic differences are more often just skill differences than we would like to admit. And yeah, this idea that you too might be an, intu an intuitive genius who can just get into poker and start winning at it. You know, that that's more or less uh, uh, impossible for an informed person to believe now. Um, I mean, I guess about your question, I think the era of new superstars is pretty much over. Like those pretty much all got minted by ESPN in the boom era. And I think a lot more of that had to do with ESPN and uh, sort of pre-fragmented, more focal experiences, high Brendan Kaufman uh, era than, than we would like to admit. And I think we're pretty much done having new poker stars on anything like the level of Phil Ivey, but maybe that's pessimistic and maybe that's something that a WPT employee doesn't want to admit. There, I've said a lot of things. Some of that was an answer to your question. Some of that is new questions for you. Uh, please react as you see, Phil. Well, you bring up a, an interesting point of, uh, of how ESPN marketed the game, but also, too, um, I've had the fortune of ex the fortunate experience of being friends with two main event champions in this in the in this decade, uh, Joe McKeon and Scott Blumstein, who were right around my age, and they kind of found poker in a in a in their own unique way. But you know, after they won, I don't think there was necessarily as much incentive for them to um, promote themselves to the best of their ability to to make money off of that. Mm -hmm. uh, also, I, just knowing what I know about both of them personally, they also have their different motivations of how they want to go through life. So I think there was more incentive to play poker as much as possible during that time just because of that uh, capability to earn more of that money. But, you know, I, I see so, I see folks who have come across like uh, Ali Sarovich, who I've known since he was since he was 21 playing his first WPT events. And he ha certainly has a charisma and a charm that I think could break through to a larger audience. But I. Uh, you know, if he ever decides that he doesn't want to play poker as much as he does now, there's not really that incentive for him to come out and play on in these TV games if there's fewer of them. So it, it, it's 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 tougher for that younger player now to to play as much as they might want to. But I, you never know when that next person might come along. Like I, Daniel Legrandu, it, it seems odd to me that. There's really only been one Daniel Negreanu in terms of his personality and the way it reached a large portion of people because he is a fantastic ambassador for poker in the way that he has touched so many people in the game, especially during the boom. He was a major part of that. Uh, and I, I just have never come across a person in poker who has had his type of personality really since that time. Maybe you guys have, but I... You know, in sports, there's always charismatic athletes in some way or another. But maybe those maybe those people who shared the same personality traits as Daniel decided to do something different with their life instead of playing poker. And we just never had the opportunity to really know who those people are. Yeah, I mean, I I think I really strongly disagree with that, <laughs> just because, like, I mean. I host a poker podcast and have um, I'm not super into the day to day in poker because I have other jobs, etc. You said, you know, you're you're you know fortunate to know these great main event champions. I literally could not have named two main event champions from the aughts. I, I couldn't have done it um, like that. Ali person you named. I'm, I'm sure he's amazing. I've never heard of him. <laughs> I, I host a podcast about poker. Um, I, I think so much of this just has to do with. Uh, like the pre-smartphone era boom and the possibility of something being on ESPN and, and being current 
and being in everybody's living room in a way that nothing will ever be again, maybe. Uh, I mean, maybe there's still the Super Bowl, but um, it just seems utterly impossible that poker will uh, mint another superstar the way it, it did before, um, just because the boom and ESPN are, are over and the world is extremely fragmented uh, and it's not going back. Do I sound like a grump or a pessimist to you? I don't think so. I think monoculture has really come across in many different ways, and poker is private impacted by that. I know when the when Moneymaker was on in 2003, I think they were able to get so many reruns on ESPN because of the NHL lockout, if memory serves. So, so yeah, like I, I know every person in poker, it seems like, has watched The Queen's Gambit. I have not. I've been watching other stuff just because there's other stuff to watch, and you know, I'll get to it when I get to it. Uh, and there's just the many options of what you can consume it definitely impacts poker just in terms of that fragmentation, but also too, uh, WPT really is everywhere in terms of ways that you can consume and watch it. So even though there are more options than ever to consume, um, the WPT really is just about on every OTT platform you can think of in terms of how you can watch the product and, uh, come upon it in your own way. Uh, and that's one of the big things I think is going to be a huge part of 2021 is uh, being able to, to grow that and also to uh, promote it where, where you can watch the show. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. That makes sense. It strikes me as unlikely that in a world where Michael Jordan is either the most famous or second most famous basketball player still, um, that... Yeah, and like the NBA certainly knows something about marketing, um, and there are plenty of very interesting people playing in the NBA. Where that's the case, it seems unlikely to me that poker will have another Daniel Negreanu. But it would be awesome if it did uh, have another really huge star, and and I wish you the best of luck. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, is there anything that you want to leave us with? Matt, any uh, recommendations? Doesn't have to be poker specific. If there's just you know something you've been reading or watching or listening to, or whatever that you enjoyed. I, turn about being fair play. You can just say the podcasts suck generally. <laughs> I will say one book that I read that was really good uh, in 2020 was a uh, Strokes of Genius, the the book about uh, Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal and their infamous infinite, infamous uh, Wimbledon final that they played uh, a few years ago. Well, actually, not a few years ago. I think it was in 2008. Just how two men who were the exact same height and weight but played a completely different style of tennis ended up playing uh, the greatest match of all time. And uh, I'm a big tennis fan, so I, I, I revisited that this year, and it, 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 I found new ways to look at it that I hadn't previously. Awesome. Yeah, That's excellent. a great rec. Well, thanks so much, Matt. It was good talking to you. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Take care. Take care. Tapping on my window pane Feeling faint, feeling ashamed Spread too thin and hoping for a synonym For a world that could take away the pain Sleepless nights, do I need some Devotion of a car, my light of the fair passage of a bill.